The president of Wheaton tells the story of King Louis XII of France. And before he rose to the throne, he was actually thrown into prison by his political enemies, kept there in chains. And eventually he was released. And as chance would have it, he rose to the throne of France. And as he had this newfound power, his advisors encouraged him to use this power to exact deadly vengeance on all of his political enemies. And so he took his counsel, their counsel in, and he made a list of names on a scroll that was brought to him of everyone who had conspired against him. And beside their names, he wrote in red a cross, a red cross. He showed it to his counselors. And quickly word got out that King Louis had prepared a kill list of all his enemies. And some of those people written on those uh, pieces of scroll made their escapes, fleeing for their lives. And when they came back, or I'm sorry, when the counselors came back telling King Louis what had happened, he clarified for them what this list actually was. And he said this, The cross which I drew beside each name was not a sign of punishment, but a pledge of forgiveness, extended for the sake of the crucified Savior, who upon his cross forgave his enemies and prayed for them. What an interesting statement that he made. When he had all the power to inflict damage and hurt and suffering on those people who hurt and damage and caused him to suffer, he didn't use that power. And in this example, we have a beautiful illustration of what Jesus calls you and me to do. And that is to extend forgiveness to those who have hurt us, who have damaged us, who have caused us to suffer. And that's not always an easy thing to do. It wasn't easy for the king of France to do that. And it's certainly not easy for us. But you see, my friends, we follow a crucified king from Nazareth who gives us clear instructions on how we should do this. But the question I want to put before you today is this. We know that we should forgive, but what if you can't find it in you to do so? I mean, it's easy to forgive some things that really don't matter that much. But what about those deep things that have caused you untold sleepless nights and pain and suffering? How do you find it within you to actually move toward forgiveness and not hold grudges, not engage in imaginary character assassination of what you could do to this person? How do we get free from that and live in the freedom that Jesus gives us? So we're going to call our study Increase Our Faith. I pulled this little graphic up here because I think this expression might have been on the, the faces of the disciples when they listened to Jesus give some of the instructions that we just heard read there. And so let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord to teach us and to convict us and to challenge us and to change us this day. Let's pray. Lord, even from that passage that was just read for us, we see some of the daunting teaching that Jesus challenges his disciples with. Lord, for those of us who've been around Christianity for any amount of time, we know that you call us to forgive our enemies. We know that Jesus cried out to you on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And yet, Lord, sometimes we find it so incredibly difficult to do what you call us to do. It seems impossible. So I want to pray for us as we listen to these words and seek to marinate in them today and together. You know our hearts and you know exactly what we need. So would you meet us this day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, friends, so we're still in that same dinner party that began in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, where Jesus has all these uh, outcasts and misfits and marginalized people gathering around him, and he's feasting with them. And the religious leaders of that day are looking at what's going on, and they're grumbling and sneering against Jesus, saying, this man receives sinners. And in response to that, Jesus goes into some of the most powerful teaching that he's ever given. He's given a teaching on the, power, the parable of the prodigal son. You know that one. That's one of the great ones. He's also given, just in the chapter right before this, a parable about the coming great reversal. How everything in this world is going to be turned upside down when his kingdom comes and set to right. And so that's the context that we're in. And so we find in verse 1 in chapter 17... These words, and he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, and let me pause for just a second. He's saying this to his disciples, but those religious leaders are listening in. They're looking on. So even though he's saying this to his disciples, he's also saying it to those people who are grumbling and sneering at the fact that Jesus has the audacity to welcome sinners and feast with them. So Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. The translation I'm using here translates a Greek word by saying temptations to sin. But I want to pull out the original meaning of that Greek word for us a little bit better. It's actually this Greek word from which we get the word scandalous. And it means actually something that is a stumbling block for someone else. That's literally what that Greek word means. It's a stumbling block. That is an impediment placed in the way, causing one to stumble or fall, a cause of ruin, destruction, misery, etc. It's just simply something that trips someone up. So we could translate it like this. Jesus said to his disciples, stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Remember, the religious leaders are grumbling that Jesus is welcoming sinners into his presence and feasting with them. They think that any self-respecting teacher, anyone who considers himself a holy man, and certainly if he considers himself the Messiah, would never sit in the presence of sinners. But Jesus is illustrating what the kingdom of God is all about. And so they would rather put stumbling blocks up in front of these people steering them away from Jesus. But Jesus operates differently. There's interesting, in in Matthew 23, there's a series of woes that Jesus gives to these religious leaders. And for example, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Those are powerful words, aren't they? But these men, they just loaded burdens upon people. They considered themselves the holiest, the cream of the crop. And they made everyone else feel inferior to them. And they would never sit in the presence of what they deemed to be a sinner. How different we are called to be. The Apostle John, who's one of the close friends of Jesus, says this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, 
And in him there is no cause for stumbling. The disciples of Jesus are supposed to lead people to God, not away from God. We're not supposed to put stumbling blocks in people's way, loading them up with burdens that they can't carry and we can't carry. There's this interesting place when Jesus has sent his disciples out into the world to preach his gospel of good news. And there's this this new phase that these Jewish believers had to enter into. All of a sudden, these non-Jewish people were coming into the faith. And the question was, do we need to make them, in essence, become Jewish in order to embrace the Jewish Savior? Should we make them be circumcised? Should we make them keep all the dietary laws? Should we make them keep all the holy days? And the apostles gathered together with the elders of these new churches, and they came to some some conclusive uh, decisions. And one of those people gathered there uh, that day was James, the brother of Jesus. And he said this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles, that is, those non-Jewish people who are turning to God. My friends, this is exactly what Jesus was doing. This is why he was having these feasts with these sinners, these outcasts, these misfits. Because he was trying to lead them to God. And these religious leaders, they would rather put stumbling blocks in the way of anyone who wanted to follow Jesus to God. And so, he said to his disciples, temptations to sin or stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better, Jesus says, For him, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a millstone in my life. And I have an idea that this is probably not a good thing. But I did a little research on this and I found out what millstones were. Here's an image of some giant millstones. They're set up on end, but these were essentially huge pieces of rock with one laid on top of the other. And they would drop grain in there, and you would attach oxen to the outside of these, and they would move these giant millstones around. And it would crush this grain. And they would get the ability to make wheat from them, or corn, or cornmeal, or whatever. And so Jesus says, it would be better for those who want to lead people astray, who want to put stumbling blocks in the way to coming to Jesus and to God, It would be better for them to have one of these giant millstones put around their neck and for them to be cast into the sea. Someone says, whoa, Jesus, that's just a bit too intense. Why would you say such a horrific thing? I mean, the imagery of that is just horrific, isn't it? I'm reminded of what the Southern Gothic writer Flannery O'Connor once said when she was asked why so many times in her stories the main character ends up facing a very violent end, sometimes leading to death, but sometimes more just something that is so shocking and crazy that it turns their world upside down. (laughs) And this is what she said. You have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. If you ever read Flannery O'Connor, and I would encourage you to do so, you understand exactly what she's getting at. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. To those blind religious leaders, Jesus is using strong imagery to try to awaken them, to come to their senses, to see that in leading people away from Jesus and away from God, it would be better for them if they were to have a millstone hung around their neck and cast into the sea. And we need to be careful with this imagery. 
I love what Kent Hughes in his commentary said. We must interpret this woe very carefully. Jesus did not say the woe upon the offender is that he will have a millstone tied around his neck and be tossed into the sea. Being cast into the sea is the way to escape the woe. The woe is far worse. So Jesus is just a little bit angry with those religious leaders. And I can imagine those religious leaders in the background when he says it would be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck and cast into the sea to be thinking, he's not talking about us, surely. That would be crazy. Jesus is going to pivot here. He's going to go from talking about the horror of causing someone else to sin to our responsibility to help someone who has fallen into sin. And so he says, pay attention to yourselves. He's speaking to his disciples, and through that we need to hear it ourselves. Pay attention to ourselves. When we're thinking about this issue of stumbling blocks and sin and people causing folks to stray from God, we need to pay attention to ourselves because it is very easy to become self-righteous. We can look at someone else and say how terrible they are. So Jesus says, pay attention for yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now let me just say, even though Jesus is pivoting here, I think we can presume safely that he's still talking about that sin which causes someone else to stumble. And if that's the case, Jesus is saying, when someone causes someone else to stumble, you need to rebuke that person. Someone says, you see, this is exactly why I don't want to become a Christian. Y'all just like going around rebuking people. (laughs) And let me say, if that's one of your objections, I get that. Religious people tend to love rebuking people. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to do, a love of rebuking people. Remember, in Jesus' day, those religious leaders loved to rebuke people. They loved to condemn others. They loved to put them down and use that as an opportunity to show how holy and pure and righteous they are. So Jesus is working on a number of different angles here. Philip Graham Reichen, I'm actually going to share several quotes from his commentary on the book of Luke because I've learned so much from him in this preparation for this study, and I found so much of what he said to be encouraging. He said this, There's a right way and a wrong way to confront sin. We need to go to one another courageously, not timidly, willing to say what needs to be said, no matter the cost. We need to go to one another gently, not judgmentally, demonstrating the tender mercy of Christ. We need to go to one another humbly, not proudly, having already confessed our own great sin. We need to go to one another affectionately, not harshly, showing how much we love our brother or sister in Christ. We need to go to one another prayerfully, not impulsively, asking God to glorify himself through our ministry of reconciliation. But we do need to go to one another, and it takes grace to do this well. So Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Jesus is hanging out with these misfits and outcasts, these people that were described by their culture as sinners. And these religious leaders are putting stumbling blocks up. But what Jesus wants is for them to actually repent of what they're doing. And here, in not-so-coded language, Jesus is saying to them, I'm willing to forgive you if you repent of that. What grace and mercy there is in Jesus. But he doesn't just say this. 
Jesus used this opportunity to really press home this idea of forgiveness upon us. He continues, and if he sins against you seven times a day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't like this teaching of Jesus. <laughs> you're a pastor, you're supposed to like this. I'm a human too. <laughs> and I struggle sometimes with what Jesus says. If someone sins against me seven times in a day, you know, I might be willing the first time, maybe the second time, especially if it's you know, a friend of mine like Jimmy's and we're good friends and you know, I got lots of grace for him. But someone who sins against me seven times a day, I mean, come on. I think we would say something like this in our hearts. Um, Jesus, this just doesn't seem very wise. I mean, what about, what about, what about? Riken again is helpful for us. He says, immediately we think of all kinds of objections. What about accountability and church discipline? How can someone really be repentant if he has to keep repeating, I'm sorry, repenting again and again and so on? These are legitimate questions. And the Bible speaks to them at other places. But here, Jesus is telling us to forgive and forgive and forgive. Jesus wants us to have a heart of forgiveness. And when we have the heart of forgiveness, we're able to forgive again and again. All right, friends, here's a trigger warning. What I'm going to talk about next is, is really difficult, um, especially if you've been the victim of any kind of uh, molestation or aggression towards you in this way. But let's just think about inside the church. I've used this example before. Remember the, the scandal of the Roman Catholic Church where they had countless, just in our nation, countless priests who abused children. And the church knew about it and just moved them around to different parishes. Or think about the, the front page of the Houston Chronicle, February 10th, 2019, which they had plastered on that front page mugshots of just some of the over 350 workers and pastors and youth leaders in Southern Baptist churches who had abused young people. It would be better if that had never happened. Wouldn't it have been better if, if they would have listened to the words of Jesus and said, it would be better for me to have a millstone hung around my neck and cast into the sea than I should hurt and damage one of these kids. Who knows how many of these people, having grown up in the church and trusted those who were in authority, have since walked away from the faith. You remember Larry Nasser? He was the U.S. gymnastics team doctor and a professor at Michigan State University. And during his time of caring for gymnasts, he had abused over 250 girls. In court, over 200 testified to the abuse that they had received at his hands. And he received sentence after sentence. He will never get out of prison. He will never have the freedom to damage another person. But what's interesting is in his court case, when he was on trial, he walked in every day carrying a Bible. And I don't know why he was carrying it. The cynical side of me wanted to say he wanted to use it as a prop to, to gain sympathy. But Rachel, Rachel Denhollander, one of his victims, who kind of led the charge to bring charges against Larry Nasser, used that opportunity to try to put into practice some of what Jesus is saying. Listen to what she said when she had a chance to make her 
victim impact statement. She said, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I I too choose to live this way, to love this way. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says, it is better for a stone to be hung around your neck and you be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment when all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt So you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than the forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Isn't that powerful? I stand in amazement of this woman who put into practice the very things that Jesus is teaching in this passage. She could have just condemned this man in court. And no one would have faulted her. She could have just expressed anger at him. And no one would have faulted her. She could have expressed disgust and said, I just hope you rot in prison all the days of your life. And no one would have faulted her. But instead, she had the courage to confront. Just like Jesus said. And she had the courage to extend forgiveness. Just like Jesus said. So let me pause for a second and ask you this question. Do you hold any grudges towards someone? Is there anyone that comes to mind that you find difficult to forgive? I ask you that question because the teaching of Jesus applies to you today. It applies to me as well. If images of people that you hold grudges against, that you know you need to forgive, come to mind, this text from Jesus is meant to do deep, deep work within us. So Jesus says in verse 3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Let's dial in on that phrase for just a second. Increase our faith. I imagine hearing these disciples say these words in a voice of exasperation. (laughs) Jesus, what do you mean forgive someone seven times? That word, that, that 
number seven, biblically, is just a number of perfection. What does it mean for me to give full and complete forgiveness to someone who sins against me over and over again? That's impossible. No one can do that. Lord, increase our faith. And let me just say, this prayer, increase our faith, is a wonderful prayer for all of us to say. We all need our faith to be increased. We all need to trust Jesus much more than we do, your pastor included. We need the grace that he offers to us to be able to do those things that he calls us to do. And specifically, my friends, we need our faith in the crucified and risen Jesus to be increased. This is so important. What the disciples didn't know at the time Jesus gave these words, we now know that Jesus himself would go on to experience horrendous suffering at the hands of his opponents who conspired with the Roman authorities to put him to death. And he extended mercy and forgiveness, telling his disciples upon his resurrection, I want you to go back into Jerusalem to those very people who crucified me and declare to them the forgiveness of sins that I offer in my name. Riken again, is helpful for us. <clears throat> he says, as soon as we start talking about forgiveness, we are talking about something very close to the heart of the gospel. The cross fully acknowledges the sinfulness of sin by placing it under the wrath and curse of God. But it also atones for sin, providing a way for sinners like us to be forgiven. Let me just pause here in the middle of this quote and just say, my friends, if you have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, let me encourage you to do so this very day. You, like all of us, have sinned and fallen short of what God calls us to be as humans. And you, like all of us, need the forgiveness that is freely offered to you. So you can have that this very day by simply admitting to him the grace that you need, thanking him for dying and atoning for sin on the cross, and receive from him the forgiveness of sins that he wants you to experience. If you take that step today, I would love to know that. I would love to help you take another step after that as you begin this journey of following Christ. But let's continue now with that quote from Riken. He says, the way we learn to forgive, therefore, is by looking to Jesus and his cross. As we wrestle with God's call to forgive, we need to keep going back to the cross of Christ. This is where we find our own forgiveness and also where we find the courage, the freedom, and the grace to forgive others for their unforgivable sins. This is where I must go every time I feel I cannot forgive to the cross where Jesus forgave me. You see, my friends, when we keep going back to the cross, metaphorically in our minds, as we go back to that place where Jesus was crucified on behalf of us, it's not just a one-and-done kind, of, one kind of a thing. It's something that begins working in us. And we understand that the, the grace and the forgiveness and the relationship that has been given to us because of what Jesus has done we actually begin to want others to experience that same grace and mercy and relationship with God. And so we're willing to extend forgiveness and become like Jesus was, an instrument of God's peace and forgiveness upon this earth. So his disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. So what do you think Jesus is going to do next? Well, hocus pocus, <laughs> abracadabra, presto, here's more faith. That's not what Jesus does. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith 
like a grain of mustard seed. You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What is Jesus getting at here? In my mind, I look at this, and kind of what comes instinctually to me is that you know, Jesus gives us this small amount of faith, and like in Star Wars, we can use the force, and we can just take these massive objects and move them. But is that what Jesus is getting at here? I don't think so. Again, Reichen is helpful for us. Listen to what he says. Jesus uses this illustration to show that we need to trust God to do what only God can do. This is what it means to have faith. It means believing that God is able to do what is impossible for us. Jesus is not saying that faith will give us magic powers, like some kind of supernatural force. Nor is he saying that we should use our faith to do something trivial, like transplant a tree. Moving the tree is simply an illustration of doing something we cannot on our own, but God can. The point is that if God calls us to do something impossible, like forgiving someone seven times a day, we need to trust his enabling power. Do you get what he says? If God calls you and me to do something seemingly impossible, like, I don't know, let's just say walk on water, or to do nothing without prayer. Or to give more and more of our money away to help those who are most vulnerable. To forgive someone who has hurt us deeply. If that seems impossible, Jesus says, look, it's not so much that you need your faith increased. If you had just the faith of the size of a mustard seed, that would be enough for you to do what God is calling you to do. Because you see, my friends, this is so important. God always calls us to do things we can't do on our own strength. Whether it's sacrificially loving that person who's annoying the daylights out of us, or whether it's getting up the courage to talk to someone about Jesus. These things we can't do on our own. You're not going to find it within you to be able to do this. But what you're going to find is that when you enact just a little bit of trust, the size of a mustard seed, saying to the Lord, this is impossible, but you're calling me to do this, so I'm going to step out and trust with the strength that you provide. Jesus says, you can do it. Here's a key point, my friends. Jesus knows that our faith needs to be increased, but he's, always, he's also challenging us to do what he is calling us to do with the faith that we do have by trusting that God's power meets us in our weakness. Jesus is going to tell a quick story. I'm going to look at it. It seems at first glance disconnected, but let's see how it might be connected. He says to, him, to them, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? None of his disciples, with the exception of possibly Matthew, the tax collector, had the amount of money to be able to hire a servant. Servants in this day were really people who, uh, because of, of debt, that they had incurred, uh, rented themselves out, so to speak, to someone to pay off that amount. And so Jesus is using this kind of imagery and these social standings and everything going on in this society. He says, look, if you had a servant who's working in the field and he comes in, are you going to say to him, hey, come at once and pull up to this table. Can I make you some dinner? <laughs> the disciples would say, no, no one does that. 
Jesus says, will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. And the disciples would be, yeah, that's exactly what we would say in that situation. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No, he's simply doing what he was supposed to do. Let me put this maybe in a, in a way we can understand. Suppose your car is broken down, and you get it towed to the mechanic shop, and, oh, man, it's going to cost you $1,000 to get this thing fixed. I hate it when that happens. Cars never break down at a good time. And so they call you on the phone, say, it's going to cost $1,000, and you're just like, oh, okay, I've got to have this vehicle. Go ahead and do it. And so you go, and you pick it up. You pay for that job that was just done. Do you then turn around and say, you know what? <laughs> Thank you so much for fixing my car. It's so, we need more people like you in this world. You're just so kind. I mean, Jesus is not saying we shouldn't be courteous. But rather, here, the person who did work for us and that we're paying to do that work for should thank us for giving them business. So that's kind of the analogy going on here. That mechanic is simply doing what he got hired to do. And then Jesus concludes by saying, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And this might seem a little bit over the top here, but what is Jesus getting at here? Remember what he's been teaching them about forgiveness, about their call to forgive over and over and over again. If they do this, this isn't anything extraordinary. This is simply what Jesus calls his people to do. So let me pull up Rachel Denhollander again and ask you this question. Do you think that Rachel Denhaller wants us to view her as some kind of hero or super saint? Or simply as a servant of Jesus who is doing what Jesus calls his servants to do? I guarantee you it's the latter. She would say, you know, I'm just, I'm no super Christian. I fail over and over again in my, in my own life. I've received grace and forgiveness from Jesus. I'm simply doing and extending to Larry Nasser the grace and forgiveness that I've received. I'm simply doing what Jesus calls me to do. You see, she lives in the shadow of the cross. And my friends, we are called to live in light of the cross where Jesus did the very thing that masters in his day would never do. Namely, he made himself a servant who would serve us in our deepest place of need. Even though a master would never say to his servants that were hired to pay off their debt, come, let me serve you. Jesus actually does that for us. He serves us at our greatest place of need. The Apostle Paul, you remember in Philippians, said this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, look, 
Jesus is not calling us to do anything he hasn't done himself. Yes, it takes the mind of Christ to humble ourselves and extend forgiveness to others. Even Jesus humbled himself to the lowest place, becoming the servant of all his people and dying on the cross. And therefore God recognized that great act and gave him the name above every name. There's another place where Jesus tells a parable in which the the master is delighted with his servant. Matthew 25, Jesus says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So in that quick story we looked at that Jesus told, would the master give thanks to his servant? The answer would have been no. But Jesus recognizes every small mustard seed act of faith that we engage in. And he'll one day say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. One more, the kingdom of God is a feast. We're going to have a little foretaste of that today, one o'clock. There's a time, if we've been reading the gospel of Luke straight through, this took place in chapter 12, we're in chapter 17. This might still be resonating in our minds. Jesus told this parable When she says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, that is the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that even though masters in this day would never say to their servants, come, let me serve you, Jesus is exactly that kind of master. That's why we say he's the king of kings and the lord of lords, the friend of sinners, but he's also delightfully the servant of servants. And so, in conclusion, my friends, how would you answer this question? What kind of me is God calling me to be? Based on what we've looked at today, what kind of me is God calling us to be? He's calling us to be servants who are courageous. He's calling us to be servants who are forgiving. He's calling us to be servants who are full of faith. He's calling us to be dependent on God's enabling, empowering grace. And he's calling us to be humble. God delights when people humble themselves. He he delights in raising those humble and showering his grace and his blessing and rewards upon them such that they could never possibly dream of repaying him. That's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of God that Jesus was telling those sinners he was eating with about. And that's the kind of God that beckons you and me to that great eternal feast, all because of what Jesus has done for you 